Welcome to the Grand Conversation, the Machon Siach podcast. Machon Siach at SAR High School, honoring the memory of Belda Kaufman Lindenbaum Zifronal of is the research arm of SAR High School, where faculty bridge theory and practice on matters of Jewish education, curriculum, and culture. I'm your host, Shmuel Hain, Rosh Beit Midrash at SAR High School and director of media and publications at Machon Siach. Our producer is Avi Bloom and our engineer is Greg Schmidt. This episode is part of a series of podcasts devoted to the important conversations we are having at Machon Siach in the aftermath of the October 7th Hamas terror attacks on Israel, the subsequent military campaign in Gaza, and the impact of that war on Am Yisrael around the world. Today's episode features a conversation between our guest host, Rabbi Tully Hartstark, and Rabbi Dr. Daniel Roth, the director of Mosaica, an Israeli NGO. At Machon Siach, we have gotten to know Dr. Roth through our partner, the S. Daniel Abraham Center for Middle East Peace, where we have encountered his important work forming and growing a network of insider religious mediators who help prevent, mitigate, and mediate crisis situations throughout the Middle East. What exactly does the work of religious mediation look like during wartime? Is there actual ongoing dialogue between religious leaders in these communities at this terrible time? These are the essential questions of this grand conversation. Thank you, Rabbi Hain. We are honored to welcome Rabbi Dr. Daniel Roth to the show. Dr. Roth is the director of Mosaica, an Israeli NGO advancing community mediation and dialogue in Israel. Much of Dr. Roth's work focuses on the network of insider religious mediators who help prevent, mitigate, and mediate crisis situations throughout Israel, the Middle East, and beyond. Dr. Roth is also a core faculty member at Bar-Ilan University's graduate program for conflict management, um, for conflict management resolution and negotiation, and at Tel Aviv University's international program in conflict resolution and mediation. Um, His book, Third Party Peacemakers in Judaism, Text, Theory, and Practice, was published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Uh, Dr. Roth, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate your taking the time. I know that uh, there is so much that you are involved in and working on right now. Um, I think that for m- many in our audience, the work of insider religious mediation and the work of Mosaic, uh, um, just to open them up to what that kind of work, what it's all about, is, uh, I think, the place to start. Could you tell us some of what you've done before October 7th? <laughs> um, well, I'll start by explaining the the terminology that I um, that I like to use to describe work that's often not uh, seen, it's not understood as well. When we're talking about ethno-national um, religious conflicts, identity conflicts, uh, which is very much what's happening here in Israel and in the Middle East, the question often arises as to who is um, in a position to help mediate between conflicting identities, especially when we're dealing with religious identities. And attempts that have been made over the years by international diplomatic mediation channels often fall short because they're mediating between the political, um, often secular uh, leadership. But as we know, especially in Israel and the Middle East, the political leadership is not the only leadership that's that's actually influencing reality. And there are very significant religious leaders that are sometimes even more influential than the politicians who represent those, those worldviews. So who are the people that are mediating between 
the religious leaders that are impacting directly the reality um, and often are more on the extremes of the conflict. Who's able to speak that language and not only speak the language, but have what we call insider trust. And we use a formula that if you're not 99% connected to the problem, you're not able to influence it. If you're 100% connected to the problem, well, then you're the problem. If you're 98% connected to the problem, then you're already not trusted and you're too left or liberal or whatever it is, and you're you're not in the inner circle. So how many phone calls of trust divide, degrees of separation are there from the most influential and, again, often extreme religious leadership on one side of the Middle East to the other side of the Middle East that directly impact the reality within Israel and Israel between Israel and its leaders. So that's what insider religious mediation is. It is not dialogue groups. It's not interfaith. It is not uh, moderates talking to moderates. It's dealing in constant crisis situations, trying to save lives and prevent the real and unfortunate uh, tangible threat of a regional holy war. I would imagine that uh, many of our listeners would assume that the most extreme voices are the places where it's least likely to be able to have uh, impact because of the, uh, the, the nature of being very firmly rooted and in an extreme uh, position. I'm wondering if you could explain why that is a path that is important and possible at all. So, you know, when we talk about um, what has the potential to succeed, okay? And succeed means saving lives and preventing preventing religious war. Um, so it is not easy to work with the extremes. It is very uh, improbable. Uh, on the other hand, the argument that I like to make is that if nobody's engaging the quote unquote bad guys of any conflict, the ones who are actually shooting or telling to shoot or giving religious rulings to shoot, if no one is engaging them, then the probability of anything actually uh, leading towards a path of stability and from ceasefires to long-term arrangements becomes even less probable. The chance of succeeding in preventing a major clash of these worldviews was only around 15% at tops, meaning engaging the extremes is not something that, uh, that, is, that, is, uh, that is easy. Um, it's precisely because it's so difficult but when you have tangible results and you solve actual problems and you save lives, people realize that there are channels that can actually operate, again, behind the scenes, far away from the, from, from the news and far away from the public eye. And then people try those channels again and again and again. In terms of names, I think, you know, the, 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 the two names of uh, the leaders who got this work started in the midst of the second intifada, going back 20 years ago, was Rabbi Michael Malkior, uh, at then at the time, a deputy foreign minister, uh, a well-known rabbi, a, a leader in the then Maimad party, sort of the more uh, moderate religious Zionist party, which was in coalition with Ehud Barak at the time, and his late partner, Sheikh Abdullah Nimr Darwish, who was the founder of the Islamic movement. And... Um, many people, uh, including your listeners, I'm sure know who Dr. Mansour Abbas is, the head of the Ra'am party, who is a student of, of Sheikh Abdallah. And the two of them said, well, you know, we believe that religion plays an important role in helping ensure stability and in helping ensure that there could be peace one day in the Middle East. 
how do we work with everyone who disagrees with us in the Middle East? And Sheikh Abdullah set off on a journey to try to engage the most extreme and influential Islamic post-scheme religious leaders, political leaders throughout the Middle East, um, through him, through his students and others, and Rabbi Malkior in his way, trying to engage also, you know, all those, only those who never would have voted for him or didn't vote for him. Uh, the relationship with uh, Sheikh Abdullah and Rav Melchior and what you described, it actually gives us a sense of uh, the way that uh, these relationships really can make a difference. I'm interested in hearing a particular story uh, from years past, from, from before October 7th, something that can show the way that uh, insider religious mediation actually has made a difference. So Sheikh Abdullah Nimr Darwish um, is a name that is unknown really in America today. I would love to see in 15 years kind of a, a major motion picture uh, made about his life story the same way everybody in the world knows Martin Luther King and Gandhi and others, um, because it's it's a fascinating story. It's a, it's a story of um, uh, someone born in the middle of the 1948 war in a village that was on the border um, of what became later the uh, um, the border of 1948 in Kafr Qasim. And he has an amazing story of how he almost died during the war, which is perceived as a miracle that he survived. And he actually is, as a child throughout his whole life, was, um, was disabled, physically disabled. And I think that was part of his um, sense of, of feeling he could overcome lots of hardships. His stories about how he was bullied in school uh, and the principal of the school came and saw him on the steps when he was a 10 year old and said, why aren't you in school? And his mother said, I don't want him to go to school because he's going to be bullied. He said, I will take care of him. No one's going to bully him. And that was just considered the second miracle that he went back to school, got an education. And when people were able to stand up to these difficult moments, they become leaders. They become fearless of what they believe in. So he starts after the 67 war learning Islam he gets his family to become more religious. He gets Israeli Arabs to become more religious. And he creates what's called the Islamic movement, which is at the time was a branch of the larger theology of the Muslim Brotherhood. And in the, uh, this is early 70s. And then the late 70s, he starts the first jihadist movement called Usrat al-Jihad, the family of jihad, and inspired by what was going on in Iran and thinking, and then he, he, he together with um, tens of others from that group are put in jail. And while he's in jail, he sits and has a lot of time to think. He starts meeting Jews. He starts discussing text and, and with, you know, learning. And he comes out of jail in the, in the mid eighties and all of his, you know, followers are there and they're saying, we're going to continue the jihad. He said, no, 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 there's this new thing. I, I was wrong. He said, I was wrong. I sent you, I led you in the wrong direction. The same way there is a religious uh, text that can speak about going to war. Uh, there is also religious texts that have to speak about finding a way towards peace. And he leads um, uh, these, these followers towards saying, we're going to run initially in municipal elections. Um, and they said, wait a minute, you're going to have an Israeli flag behind you. How is that? How is that possible? He said, no. No, we have to work within this thing. It's called democracy. <laughs> we're going to have Israel only, you know, Israeli Arabs only were able to vote in the mid 60s and 65. So they weren't part of the system. He said, no, there's a way that we can express ourselves through democratic means. Um, 
and he he they start running in that and then in the uh in the uh in 93 he supports the Oslo Accords as opposed to all other religious uh Islamic leaders um and he I believed- assume this was not fully this was not fully accepted to say the least I imagine and the in members municipal of the Islamic elections, movement. municipal elections he was able to convince people to go along with him because they thought it was tactical okay it wasn't a theological shift it was tactical um but there were people who 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 were against it um you know there's a story about somebody hands on a piece of paper to the front of the stage and they and they write the word boget you're you're a traitor how can you how can you all of a sudden switch directions like this we we're, we don't understand you but he kept on saying this is the right direction and in 93 he supported oslo but said it wasn't going to work if you don't know how to include the religious leaders both uh, the religious Zionist leaders, and also the Islamic political leaders. 96 is when the split happens in the Islamic movement, where he says, we're no longer, we can't just stand on the sidelines being in municipal elections, we have to join national elections. And he created a small Islamic party called Ra'am. And on this, the Islamic movement split into two, the, between the northern branch and the southern branch. The northern branch is now defined and outlawed uh, by Israel and is defined as a terrorist organization. It officially doesn't exist, but it does exist. Um, they do not recognize the reality of the state of Israel in any way, shape, or form. They don't have their own religious leaders. They listen to the religious leaders in Qatar of the Muslim Brotherhood. They don't uh, participate in any elections or even in the banking system or anything. They totally don't recognize any kind of uh, reality called the Jewish state. As well as the southern branch, where you know, he, first they joined politics, and then he, together with Rabbi Malkior started the Religious Peace Initiative to say we need to get everybody that disagrees with us in the Middle East to start thinking about how religion is a bridge and not just a barrier. And he worked in that until he passed away in two, 2017. But he left thousands of religious leaders that see themselves as his heirs and his followers. He was not, he didn't pass away as a religious Zionist, okay? He didn't convert to Judaism and, and sing Hatikva. But, you know, the opening scene of the movie or the book uh, would be, I think, who eulogized him. The fact that you had Khaled Mashal and Ismail Haniya, who called up from, from wherever they were at the time, uh, and, and on a loudspeaker said, you know, you were 20 years ahead of your time in thinking about holy war, and you were 20 years ahead of your time thinking about holy peace. And we don't agree with you, but we respect you. And at the same time, you have rabbis like Rabbi Gisser and Rabbi Malkior and other rabbis who are sitting there eulogizing him as a close friend. And there was nobody else who had a contradiction of identity as being very passionate about Israel, being very connected to religious Jewish leadership, and at the same time being a proud Muslim and, and seeing himself as a Palestinian living within 48 borders. So it's the contradictory identity that allowed him to connect uh, to so many different people and try to bring this vision. And he didn't get to see the promised land. He passed away in 2017, but he left brave leaders. One of the leaders is a man named Dr. Mansour Abbas, who is now the head of the, the political head of the of the Ra'am party, who took Sheikh Abdullah's thinking even a step further into saying we have to join the coalition. And I, I just had a meeting with him uh, uh, two nights ago. And he was talking about his criticism and deep disappointment within many leaders in the Muslim world that are not talking about the Israeli side, 
They're only talking about what's going on on the Palestinian side. And he he feels that that's a huge, 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 huge stain on Islam, that they're not criticizing Hamas for the tragedy that they did for the, for the, uh, and, and, and he's not alone. He has religious leaders uh, that were the students of Sheikh Abdullah that are um, very, 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 very uh, working hard in, in thinking of how do you create a deeply passionate uh, Islamic identity that is connected to um, the state of Israel, to democracy and to religious Judaism, <laughs> um, that there's a bond there. Uh, the uh, speaking about uh, Sheikh Abdullah and then how his path led to Mansour Abbas um, gives a sense, I think, of the potential of behind the scenes kind of work. Names that we've not heard of, uh, but the people who have can build trust and uh, make progress on that front. On those fronts, can you point to uh, a particular story from? years past, before October 7th, um, yeah. which can show the way that it, uh, insider mediation actually makes the difference. So the, the paradox of insider religious mediation is that most of it happens and never gets talked about um, because it's so sensitive. But one story that did make it into the news was around the time that the sheikh was, uh, was ill, right before he passed away in 2017, there was a... Um, uh, a terror attack that happened on the Temple Mount uh, where two Israeli police officers were killed and uh, by terrorists. And immediately the uh, Israel put up metal detectors and they said, you know, no one can go in with guns into the Temple Mount uh, area. And also the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest space in, in, in Islam. And it created a major, major threat to what is called the stability of the status quo. Uh, which I'm not going to get into the whole story there, but there were many, many, many in the Muslim world that saw this as an opportunity to use the Al-Aqsa symbolism as a uh, uniting uh, story to bring about a holy war and threats and create, you know, and destabilize the Middle East um, and say, look, the Israelis are now uh, praying up on the Temple Mount and they're doing all these things and this is our call you know, to, uh, to, to to action. And there were many Jews that actually saw this as an opportunity to change the status quo. I mean, the, you know, to say now finally Jews can can go up there freely. The Muslims are, are demonstrating outside. And each side was kind of thinking, you know, here's our opportunity. And that was a, a very, very um, serious threat because it could have led to a real head-on collision. Um, and it took some very brave, very pragmatic inside religious mediators, uh, who one of them, two of them are, are followers and, and, and close friends of Sheikh Abdullah's who worked with the top leadership from the families in East Jerusalem, the Jordanian walk who oversee it to the top Islamic re, uh, religious leaders that are sitting in Qatar and, and, and in, in Egypt, etc., to push, put the genie back in the bottle, if you will, and say, there is no holy war today. There is no reason to go and, and have a, a mass, you know, intifada plus plus. And at the same time, working with Rabbi Melchior and, and our and our and our teams at Mosaic that have a very good relationship with the Israeli police and the Israeli government. And 
you know, it came down to like, you know, do you trust the person on the other side of the call? Um, and in order to obtain a, what we would, in order to obtain what we would call a, a it wasn't just a see it's not just a psakalacha that had to be done here it had to be channels of communication to practically solve it it came down to the the the, the commander of the jerusalem police saying i have two conditions to take down the metal detectors and to return to the previous status quo situation so that we can prevent what was about to be a major major outbreak of violence one al jazeera is not allowed on when everyone comes back in, and two, no youth are allowed to dance on the spot where the terror attack actually happened. And my Malkior says, I can guarantee that won't happen. They said, how are you going to guarantee? He said, I have a partner who's there. They said, he's 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 an extremist. He said, "You, I know you think he's an extremist, but I trust him. They said, you trust him? You know, it's like, I trust you, you trust him, but can he actually prove it? And here was this 65-year-old man in the sun, it was July, stood there for two hours, didn't allow anyone to dance, and didn't allow Al Jazeera in. He's one of the top religious leaders in, in East Jerusalem. Afterwards, he actually fainted just from the heat and the pressure. But he kept his he kept his trust. He trusted Rabbi Malkior, and they trusted the police. And the, so within, you know, five degrees of separation, they were able to walk back, you know, from people's um, aspirations to kind of go head to head. So people could say, oh, he's standing in place. He was standing in place in order to make that space. physically yeah. stood there to keep the agreement. He physically stood there. So, you know, that's just one story. But honestly, you know, in a world full of tragic news, I feel very fortunate and blessed that I get to have frontline seats to see everyday brave people um, risking their lives and reputations to try to once again prevent tragedy, bloodshed, holy war, and and find better things for, 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 for all of us. In a time like this, uh, in the time after October 7th, I can't imagine the range of work that needs to be done, uh, even to just make some small progress. Can you explain or give an example of what you've been working on over the course of the past month? We're working on, on all levels, everything from within what are, you know, within the 1948 borders where Jews and Arabs are, are citizens together, mixed cities, uh, you know, tomorrow is, uh, is is Friday. What are the sermons going to be around the country? What are they talking about with the youth, the Arab youth? But I have to share with you uh, that I, I'm very emotional right now. I just came back from a five-hour meeting watching this 43-minute film uh, with the Israeli uh, Dover Tzal, their spokes person, uh, representative, the person who put together this film explaining the tragedies of October 7th. Yes. And my wife asked me, you know, what was it like watching it? Is it, you know, it's psychologically scars. I said, you know, honestly, it was scarring, but also inspiring because I got to watch it with seven top Islamic po religious leaders, three poski and four other religious leaders, all students of Sheikh Abdullah. All people what was the, who called that meeting and what was its goal? Uh, I, together with our partners, um, without getting into further detail, but, you know, uh, um, but one of the top religious leaders has kept on saying the, the, the Muslim world, whether it be in Europe or in the Middle East, does not know 
physically. They just like literally do not know what happened on October 7th. Maybe they don't want to know, but they actually have not been exposed to the same amount of material that Israeli Arabs have been exposed to, that can churn on Israeli news and then have Jewish friends and they're sending them WhatsApps. Like they just don't know. And he said, we need to take responsibility and understand exactly what happened and have every single bit of evidence in order to be able to share it because you have religious leaders calling from all over the world saying, did that really happen? You know, was it true? Because we heard it was fake. We heard CNN made something and then they retracted it. And for them to be able to not only react, but proactively say on a religious basis, what Hamas did was not only not in the name of Islam, it was against every single principle of Islam and show the sources of how it was against. every single. I think the time that, that hit me most emotionally, Tali, was every single time in that film, there was somebody slaughtering somebody else, screaming, Allah Akbar. These seven religious leaders automatically, just spontaneously, kept on saying like, like against, like there was a, I don't remember exactly the, the term that it was, like under their breath, it was like, oh my God, God forbid, God forbid, God forbid. There was, and and it I was see, hundreds of times in that in those forty three minutes. Yeah, no, and but they weren't doing it. No one's filming them. No one. No one's. They're not. They're not doing it for. It was just so antithetical to everything they believed. And for me, like there could not be a greater proof of what a split of religious theology, practical worldviews, there is between these brave religious leaders and those that spoke in the name of God and butchered a bunch of people. And for, you know, they said, we're, we, Dover itself can only get so far, <laughs> you know, these, but this is a religious you, responsibility to be able to, to get the Islamic, the Muslim to get world. Islamic leadership on their All understanding of the story. Every single Muslim leader in the world, political, religious, and school child has to know what happened on October 7th. You know, I joked with the sheikhs, I don't know about Harvard. We're not going to work on them. But the Muslim world, we are going to work on. And I and I walked away feeling, you know, inspired in the amount of meetings, the amount of trips, the amount of material that is going through and the debates. And I, I just think it's, you know, that these Muslim leaders that have been inspired by Sheikh Abdullah, both inside uh, 48 borders and beyond, well, well beyond, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and others, who are, um, who who you know, I think that it's important that the Jewish people know that we're that while the there is a major threat towards a head-on collision, I, I'm inspired that there are brave, influential individuals who are out there, again risk, risking their lives and reputations to try to get the truth out. Now they'll say it doesn't excuse the fact that there are so many innocent people being killed right now on purpose, not on purpose in Gaza. But that does not have to cloud the moral clarity about what happened on October 7th. That is a stain on Islam for eternity. And the psikot that they're writing is so that in 500 years, nobody says, oh, you know, Salah Adin and Sinwar, what a great guy. No, Sinwar was a criminal. And that the direction of the Muslim world that criticized it publicly, like Mansour Abbas and others, is the one that will be seen as the true voice of Islam and of justice. Yes, as he's been quoted, that he, uh, the, his condemnation comes without a but at the end of the sentence. It's just a condemnation, period. 
And I think we're going to see a lot more. I think we're going to see a lot more as this is being processed, but it has to be done in a way that can influence. So I just hope that we can find, you know, through these very, very dark moments is something that they kept on saying in the meeting through these very, very dark moments. No one wants tragedy like this, but maybe it could be a wake up call to say, let's try something different. Let's go in a different direction that religion has to be part of the solution. And they're not saying that as a nice interfaith idea. They're saying it has to be part of the bridge and it can be. So I pray that one day these tragedies should be, you know, a pathway towards something a little bit better. And we just kept on forcing ourselves to say, we're committed to try to get to the bottom of what happened here. Um, That was a good example. I'll give you just, you know, a a smaller uh, success story, just a little one. Okay. I mean, there's a million that can come to mind. There was a video that was going viral of a uh, municipal worker that comes into a, um, a a building site within a Jewish city, Rosh Ein, saying all Arab workers have now been fired. The mayor has given that order. Okay, so it's going viral throughout the Arab sector within Israel, saying, "Oh my God, this mayor is firing all Arab workers." This is like within the first week of the war. And they send it to me. I, I get it sent by different leaders throughout Israel. So I know it's in different area, different cities. And I said, one moment, do you know that that's actually what the mayor said? They said, well, I see a municipal worker and he has the, the municipal uniform and he's saying, and I said, I don't think that's how mayors normally communicate in a video of a guy screaming at workers to go home. Let me check. And within 15 minutes, I called the rabbi of what's called the, the Garin Torani within Rosh Ayin, who calls the deputy mayor, who says it's not true, it's fake. And the mayor came out with a video saying, you know, I respect all our workers. There's no building sites happening at all. We're in a war. And whatever came out in my name is 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 fake. And I said, now all of you have to take responsibility that shared that video. You all have a responsibility to share that corrected video by the mayor and and pass on that that's not true. So, but that's just, I mean, there is so many examples of um of the lack of context or fake social media that really, really gets people's blood, um, you know, heated up. And um, those, the the rabbis and the Garin Torani and sheikhs have a direct relationship in an yes. example like that, and, and they develop yes. trust to communicate each other to each other. Are you mediating in instances like that so that uh, the, the greater post game now? Yes, yes. It depends on the city. It depends on the area, because it you know everything comes down to different relationships. Um, but within each of them, they're either in certain cities, there people are in touch directly. In other places, they're one removed, meaning it has to go through us. Um, and I think that they're connected because they realize that it's very practical. You know, you see all of a sudden, uh, as I said, you know, a, a rumor that there's a demonstration about to happen. Well. <laughs> Is that true? Is there really a demonstration about to happen in, in in front of the great mosque, the biggest mosque in Lod? You know, is that is that happening or not happening? Or Hamas was intentionally planting a lot of fake news um, of demonstrations by Arabs. Um, and towards and what end? When they get to the Jews, that can create a counter impact of, oh, they're about to demonstrate at this corner. Let's go out and demonstrate. And then you're creating a reality. So the ability to work fast with security forces and with leaders to say, that's not true. Everyone go home. 
is 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 something that happens in trust either directly or or through our channels. Mm-hmm. And the leaders in these instances will communicate to their communities, their respective communities, what is and is not happening in order to quiet yes. the. Several times they'll go back, they'll you know they'll report back and they said we went back, we told everyone that was going to be doing it, call it off, it's not true, you know, and 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 it's that ability to say I was given information that I trust by someone that I trust, and you trust me, so let's cool it down. Um, and that's happening constantly in, in different areas. Um, can, um, can you, uh, can we shift our attention a bit to the mixed cities or the Israeli Arab, um, cities? Uh, we, I think in the news hear a lot about obviously the South and, uh, Yudah Shamron and the West Bank and we hear about the North. I think, at, uh, now we hear much less about, um, what's happening for the Israeli Arab communities and what types of things are coming up there and what role have you played? You know, as I was saying a, a moment ago, it was very, very intentional of um, the leadership of Hamas to try and um, get the Israeli Arab population to join the the effort. Um we noticed that the first two Fridays, he kept on specifically naming Israeli Arab cities and especially the mixed cities to say, go out and demonstrate, run, you know, to Al-Aqsa and everything. And they didn't listen. Um, the third week, he already stopped calling. Sinwar stopped calling upon them. And he just called upon Palestinians in the West Bank to, you know, do things. Now, it's an interesting question. Why did the Israeli Arabs to this to date not join in in part of this and there's different there's different reasons to it some has to do with the fact that they were more exposed and aware of the atrocities that happened on October 7th um in terms of their access to information their personal relationships with people many people have family and relatives the leaders that we work with who are in the medical um uh, and and you know in the within the medical system hospitals and they were part of that effort they had missiles falling in them in Ashkelon some of the sheikhs that we work with and they're praying and and saying well, this is what happened and they saw how you know the East Jerusalem Palestinian was killed by Hamas and 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 Bedouins were killed by Hamas and and missiles were falling on them so one aspect is they have a deeper understanding as to what's going on and they feel like they're in the same boat. Many of them said to us, we feel like we're all in the same boat. The police has operated in a very different way than they did in May 2021. They've been extremely um, aggressive, proactive, sometimes perhaps too aggressive, sometimes, you know, but they've been very, very present and very much engaging in the community, which is very important because the Jews who live in these cities need to feel a sense of real security, tangible security. And the fact that they feel tangible security is given by the police and how they're operating means that, you know, there will be less anarchy. And I would say there should also be credit to the fact of extremely, really brave religious leaders who have influence over their communities, who have been constantly risking their lives and reputations to be working with the police, with the mayors, with the rabbis, um, with the youth, a tremendous amount of work of ours is focused on connecting religious leaders to the 20-year-olds, 
you know, they're all in these little WhatsApp groups that there's nobody other older than 25 that's allowed into that group. So who's the adult in the room, if you will, who's kind of processing with them what they're seeing? And the sheikhs that we work with have have done several sessions with youth in the mosque saying, open up your phone, let's look at what you're seeing, and let's look at it from a critical perspective. Ask me your questions, because I'm checking with my partners, and I want to share with you a little bit more context than what you might be seeing in your WhatsApp groups. So I think the combination of, you know, the the horror of what happened, the 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 proactivity and organization of the police, and the um and 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 community leaders that have been very very active in proactive in trying to, you know, keep things calm have all played important roles. To date, what happens you know after this as the war continues, it is getting more and more challenging. It is far from over in terms of the sensitivities that we're dealing with on a daily basis. I also want to give a shout out on the to the leadership. I think that the most brave leader, and I already mentioned his name earlier, uh, uh, Israeli Arab leader who came out very, very clearly was Dr. Mansour Abbas, uh, was the first who both criticized what Hamas uh, did, called for the freeing of the hostages, has been very consistent in his messaging. And I think what what I'm privileged to see is that he's not speaking as a sole voice, meaning the religious leadership who I work so closely with behind him said already from day one, no one, Mansour represents this whole public of religious Muslims living within Israel who are going to be very clear in drawing the line and criticizing uh, Hamas and everything that they have done. And they used an expression that if anyone even raises an eyebrow against what Mansoor is saying that you're supposed to stick, uh, they said, you know, bring shoes to the meeting and stick feet, stick the shoes in their mouth and tell them to shut up. Because this is the voice of, of the moral voice, the religious voice that represents the religious Muslim community within within the state of Israel. And I think that mm-hmm. also plays a very important role um, in, in, in Jews trusting that not all Muslims are supporting Hamas, um, especially within the country. And... I think that has all been part of contributing to what's happening within within the state of Israel. Look, Mansour Abbas, I'm not going to speak just for him, but I'll speak for for the many uh, religious leaders that I work with on a daily basis. They're they're very. I'm not talking about Mansour. I'm talking about the religious leaders that I work with are very very torn. They're very very torn because they're they're they see a perspective that no one else sees. You know, in the Muslim world, they're seeing Al Jazeera only. In the Jewish Israeli world, we're seeing Channel 11, Channel 12, 13, 14, the Israeli channels. No one's watching what's going on uh, as much in terms of what's happening inside Gaza. So the Israeli Arab is often has family who's living in Gaza, relatives. They're watching very clear. They're getting their social media and they're getting all the Jewish news and the Jewish uh, and the Jewish WhatsApps from their friends. So they're in a place also of, of, a, of an internal contradictory, contradiction of their identity. They're feeling more connected to Israel on the one hand, that they're in the same boat. On the other hand, they have a Palestinian identity, they have a, of a Muslim identity. And many of them say they wish, and you know how, how can they, who they feel kind of close to in different ways within their identity, to the different parties say, how can we play a role in helping to mediate this and 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 you know not have this continue heading towards a head-on collision? 
Um, but it puts them in a very stuck place. They could be seen as traitors by the Muslim world because why are they not going out to demonstrate like everyone's doing in London to 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 Amman? On the other hand, any post that even says we're being quiet, you know, that the post is we're being quiet, even that is perceived by the Jewish Israelis. Oh, you're really part of Hamas. You're really part of the Muslim world. So they're in, it's a very very difficult um, uh, situation. Um, but I think many of them wish they could be doing more to try to help create a ceasefire. Now, when you look at the Israel's partners, I just came back from 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 one of the Abraham Accord countries uh, uh, for meetings there uh, the other day, and they're in a they're in, it's not that they, I think that they care deeply about stability. They care deeply about the relationship with Israel. But what's important to understand is that the people within the Middle East are seeing a different story. And it's important that Jordan and Egypt and the Emirates and even Saudi Arabia continue to actually have control over what's happening within their country. Um, Iran's agenda by making it into a holy war is to create regional instability against these governments. So I know that when some of them had to criticize, for example, the 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 uh, what happened with the hospital that we know is Islamic Jihad. I believe that they had to criticize Israel in order to placate what's happening and to be a relevant uh, player in terms of trying to mediate between the different countries and between the different population groups. So people are in different contexts, have to play a role within trying to hold their weight and keep their relevance to trying to create stability against the immense forces that are pushing us towards uh, pushing us off the cliff. Uh, I just, I want to ask one question about uh, hearing about the kind of the level of uh, fear and anxiety. I've been hearing of people arming, looking to arm themselves, Israelis, um, and out of, a, out of a lack of uh, faith or trust uh, that the government will be there for them. And you mentioned the police coming in very strongly. So is there truth to that? And has that been managed in some kind of way? Okay, so there's two different things that are that are happening. One is that, you know, the heroes, if they're, if you can, if we can say of the October 7th attack were these, um, were these local security kind of uh, committees, what we call kitat konanut. Um, you can help me with the translation mm. <laughs> of, of, these, uh, of these communities in, um, in the South. And what you're finding is throughout the country, everyone is feeling vulnerable and they also want to have a kitat konanut. They also want to have these kind of, you know, um, Security. You talk about uh, CSI. It's uh, is the the terminology in in America. It's a community security initiative. It's, okay. People understand now, that, that that body. Right. So what what's important about that is that it's not you and me with our own gun, right? We are we are volunteer police in a certain way within the, many of the cities. So the the commanding officer of these groups. Um, these kind of para quasi police is still the police commander of that city. Now that's a that's an important nuance um, 
if what we saw in May 2021 was anarchy, that you had everyone coming with their own guns and saying, we're going to create our own kind of militia to try to control what's happening and protect our families. So I think that the these these voluntary police, which again, let's not, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying it is a great situation, okay? And I have my concerns about these groups. I do think that that situation is better relatively than people, everyone just having their own gun uh, and creating their own militias. There's another aspect, which is there is heavily uh, individuals around the country getting gun permits. Um, it's not as much as, you know, it's still a much more challenging process than it is in the U.S., but it has been significantly expedited for people to be able to get guns. And I think that that is a, you know, a general feeling after seeing the horrors of October 7th, that people want to feel that they can protect their family, wherever they might be. Um, thank God I have not seen any use of those weapons, whether it, you know, in, in a, in a um, irresponsible way. And I hope that it continues that way. We have a major problem of around 450,000 illegal weapons within the Arab sector being used by crime families, crime organizations. And one of the big issues that we were dealing with before October 7th was how to work to de, um, to, to create stability and, um, and get rid of these crime families and the youth that were joining these crime crime organizations within the Arab sector. So there's a lot of guns out there and it's extremely important that everyone uh, feel a sense of security, a sense of solidarity uh, to some extent. And um, you know, that people don't find ourselves, we don't find ourselves, God forbid, in any kind of anarchy within the streets of Israel. We have enough um, heartache as it is to to prevent those situations. But it's important that the war not enter into the cities. Finally, there this uh, for us, this enterprise of Machon Siach is about uh, educating high school kids, ultimately. Um, I'm wondering if there, a lot of the work that you do is uh, behind the scenes, as you said, what, what parts of this would be important for um, our teachers to bring to our students? So, as you know, uh, Tully, for years I developed a, a curriculum called Machlok It Matters, okay, which uh, which I did through the Pardes Institute, and it was all about how you teach text to high school kids, um, how you could interpret a pasuk in con totally contradictory ways, and how that same uh, hermeneutic muscle, you know, in the brain can be applied to how we're reading social media or news and 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 the conflicts of today. And I I find that tool of how I grew up learning Gemara and teaching Gemara or teaching Parshanut is literally the same thing that we are doing all of the time. I see something, I'm not quite sure what I'm looking at, and I need to get a perush from the sheikh, a perush from the rabbi, and let's try to understand what the machloket is and where is the common truth reality, you know. And so that's one thing that I think we have to, as as a Jewish community, as a community of text, of, of, of Torah, we have to see this as not only uh, an important mitzvah of Talmud Torah, but an important mitzvah that can be real-life skills for how we engage with the contradictory text of, of how people are interpreting the realities. And the second thing I want to add 
is that we live in these bubbles that we don't have one friend who's connected to another friend who's connected to another friend who 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 basically creates these as i said these kind of highways or roads between different sides within a conflict and i think the jewish community is feeling more and more isolated and i think that you know the extent that each of us can have one friend who sees things a little bit different. It doesn't have to be extremely different, but a little bit different. And that person has another friend who sees things even more differently. I think having, investing in those relationships that move beyond our bubbles, you know, not everyone, just one, it's going to be really, really important in terms of keeping the Jewish world together, the Jewish community together. There are major differences that are going to be exposed. Please God, when this war with our enemy is over, um, so I think that trying to create that culture of machloket and having uh, a sense that each of us can play a role of an insider mediator uh, within our families, within our communities, between those who are not in our community, you know, I think those are really important roles that each of us can kind of play in building trust within our own networks of relationships. Daniel, thank you very much. I uh, wish uh, you and your family and uh, Am Yisrael in the world it should be uh, that peace should come and Sarotovot should come as soon as possible. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Amen. Thank you very much. Batslacha. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Grand Conversation. Please be sure to visit our website, www.machonsiach.org, where you can subscribe to our podcast and find all of our work papers, and podcasts on a variety of subjects. Until next time, this has been The Grand Conversation, the Machon Siach Podcast.